Today I want to share with you, and if you guys, if you want to sit down, there's chairs, you know? You're good? Okay. So uh, just, you know, you're not in prison or anything. No one's in prison here, yeah? Okay. So uh, today I want to share with you some ideas that you could take with you for the week and think of as well. Um, it's going to have some Jewish aspects to it, but mainly uh, also what we can apply. Right, we were talking about this just now. You know, a lot of what we think of Judaism is a story about Moses, and whilst all these stories are definitely verifiable and true, it's about more of what that means to us. The Torah is not meant to be a book of stories. You know that, right? The, the, the book that we grew up with or the stories that we grew up with is not just for the story. A person always needs to ask, so what does that mean to me? How can I apply to my life? If not, then uh, people are going to tell me I'm not into religion so much, right? Because uh, what, what is it for them when they grew up? Stories which mean nothing to them. Uh, there's no depth and it actually leaves you with many questions. Cain ki killed Abel and uh, he was the first guy to kill him and you know he got taken away and... Uh, God says, where are you? I said, what does that mean? And where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? You know, you, see, you hear all these stories and then we just take it as face value. Like, okay, it's a nice story. But we need to know why, what? What's the reason behind it? If we haven't asked, how is this a message for me? We haven't begun learning yet. By the way, there's going to be a lot of fireworks. There might be. I don't know. But uh, so just be prepared. All of a sudden, boom! It's good for you. So, uh, so uh, where was I? Uh, that's that's the idea. We have to look at Judaism and ask ourselves, what does it mean to me? Moses. This week we're going to learn a story. I may as well start off talking about this. We're going to learn the story of Moses giving over, telling God, "Listen, I'm, uh, you, know, you want me to leave this world." You're going to take me because we all die. No one lives forever. But uh, someone needs to take over my position. Who's that going to be? Moses was sure it's going to be his son. He has tr amazing children. For sure it's going to be his son. That's how it is normally. But in Judaism, it's not about power. It's about who's the right person for the job. And it's not only about who's the right person for the job. It's also which person can teach the greatest message to the future generations. So God says to him, it's going to be Joshua, Yoshua bin Nun, the son of Nun. He's going to be the one that passes on your position. Very interesting. Yoshua didn't come from any specific lineage, wasn't the son of Moses, nothing. And he's going to be the one. And of course, Moses agreed. I mean, he's talking to God. He has experience to... But we learn that not only did he agree, the Torah says that uh, when you give over the position, I want you to pass some of the light from you over to Joshua. What does that mean? Some of your light. It says, according to Jewish tradition, when Moses had the experience of speaking to God, they actually, the Jewish people never saw Moses' face for a long time. Most of the Jews never actually saw his face. You know this. They didn't know how he really looked. 
right now this this is really going to leave you saying oh conspiracies right no but wait uh listen to this they actually never really saw him uh for the first 49 days it took after they left egypt 49 days till they received the torah not just one person but the entire people they received the torah it took them 49 days from that point on there was a tremendous light like adam harishon like the first uh, creation before he sent also according to Jewish teaching this the internal soul that's inside a person is full of light and fire right? the the soul that's in us is full of light but we cover it the physical is covering it and um, Adam Harishon before he did the Chet before he did the sin Jewish teaching actually says that his Energy was extremely strong. A tremendous energy was given off from him. You, you know, you know, you get energies of people. When you meet people, you get a certain energy. Well, when there's no uh, filter, there's much more energy. Adam gave tremendous energy, according to Jewish tradition. Moses, because he had the experience of speaking to God directly, he, his face after he he went he had the experience of speaking to God, his face was too much light for anyone to look at. It was like the sun. You know, the Romans asked Rabbi Akiva, can you show me, you know, you believe in your gods and you say he's, uh, how, how can you serve him? You can't see him. What kind of god do you have? What kind of thing is this? An infinite being. You know, The further back you go in time, the more difficult it was to comprehend a creator of the universe like the way that the Jewish people think of it. What's the creator of the universe according to Judaism? This might help you, by the way. As you say, I'm not religious here, but wait a second. According to Judaism, the creator of the world is not a being like me and you. Because if he was, then who created it? It's not a finite being. And you think that finite being is going to be involved in every uh, white blood cell, in every heart, in every uh, uh, bacteria that exists, in every single part of this world, in every seed that grows, in every tree, in every fruit that knows our five senses. You know this? The fruit knows our senses. You put a seed in the ground and it grows a fruit. It only te- it tells you when it's ready. A fruit, until it's ready, it doesn't look good. It doesn't taste good, bless you. Right, A fruit, till it's ready, it doesn't taste good. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't smell good. You smell, you, it's got like a bitter, it doesn't have that smell. When, you, when an orange is suddenly ripe, what happens to it? It feels good. It looks good. It smells good. Everything, it knows exactly my senses. Wait a second. Why can't it have all of its perfection before it's ready? Till the minute it's ready, it doesn't have any way of showing me that it's ready. It, it, it tells me. My mind knows straight away it's not ready. Uh, it evolved that way. Okay, so maybe that is a chance. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about the white blood cells like we spoke about last week. Let's talk about there's nonstop DNA. Right? There's nonstop things. Today we know everything. The more we learn scientifically, the more we realize that you can't, it's like saying, like I said last week, it's like saying that ink is thrown on a paper and you have a beautiful painting. It's, what are the odds of such a thing happening? 
throw ink on a paper and you have a beautiful painting. Now, wait, that's just a painting. Let's say, yeah, it's possible. After a trillion times, I get, but let, what about if I gave you multiple colors and all the colors fell in the right place? Is that a chance of it happening by itself? Yeah, yeah, maybe. After a million times, maybe someone might tell me. Okay, fine. What about an image hidden inside the image? Meaning, an image inside the image. So you've got a painting, and hidden in the boat, on the side is a, is a frame, and in there is another image of somebody else in another country. Yeah, another image. Do you think there's a chance that that would happen? Yeah, maybe. After, if you have in, infinite chances... Right. A chance, by definition, is not infinite. Giving something a chance is not infinite. It's finite. But anyway, if you have infinite chances, it will happen. Okay. One more question. Will the painting, with infinite chances, create more paintings? That's my last question. Will you have ink that randomly lands on a paper, creates you a beautiful picture, that is now able to create infinite amounts of pictures again and again and again. It has in it seeds, like an apple, that in that apple you have seeds which can all grow m multiple trees. Can you imagine, do you know how many trees you can get from one apple? <laughs> just one apple. So what are the odds? And that's just, you know, 300 years ago, that's how we would speak. Nachmanides would speak like this to prove that there's a creator of the universe. Today... Do we need all of that? When we look at the way that the world works and the amount of knowledge we have, the expanding universe, the, it's not a static state, the world. It's ever-expanding. Today we understand that the world had a beginning. We never used to know that. We used to always believe, until Hubble, Hubble's law, until the telescope, we always believed that the world it was in the, what we call static state theory. Static state theory means it's not moving. Now we have the Big Bang Theory. What's that? It started from some speck, and from there, eventually, the whole world. That's exactly what we've been saying for years. For thousands of years, we've been speaking like that. That from a small speck, eventually, the whole world came to be. Judaism has been saying that all the time. Just what happened before the speck, they don't understand, and we do. It started as a... Um, there's a something that came from nothing how that happened is Tzimtzum there's four different worlds we have much more details details and details of exactly the process I don't want to bore you now with Hebrew words but there, there are details exactly of the process of how this world came to be from the zero to the something from the Ayin to the Yesh so, it's amazing it's amazing you know, today, with all our scientific knowledge, we're revealing more and more that there's something, uh, an intelligent design, even scientifically they use this language. There has to be an intelligent design. It's, it's, it's getting more and more revealed. So anyway, uh, going back, so Moses, his face was bright when he uh, spoke, when he, when he had an outer body experience like that. His body came so in tune with his soul, it, you couldn't look at his face. Uh, the Torah says that he had to wear a mask on his face. The only time he would take it off was when he would go into the tent of meeting in the Holy of Holies and he'd speak to God directly. He'd be able to take his mask off. Tremendous light. Uh, you can't even imagine this. So, 
the Torah says, I want you to give it over to this guy, Joshua. I'll just tell you, okay, so the town will teach you that we learn the story. Okay, Joshua, Moses gave over to Joshua, but let's learn a bit of the Talmud and see exactly what the Talmud says. Let's look at it from a deeper level because we're not in school anymore. We can look at Judaism from a higher level than the way that we grew up. The way we grew up was a story. Let's look at the deeper meaning behind it. This is a Talmud in Baba Batra, which talks about this light that God said to him, you need to pass over. Okay, it says, it says like this, You should give your hood over. Hod is like an, uh, a bright or, or f- awesome experience. Right? A bright f- light. Give that bright light over to Joshua. That's what he, God says to him. And he says, do it in front of the whole Jewish people. Because a great leader like Moses, who's going to want to take over? No one's going to accept a new leader after him. One of the biggest challenges of a great leader is being able, when he leaves that someone else will be on the level of that great leader. So everyone got so close to that leader, it's very hard for them to accept someone else. So God knew that. And he says, because of that, I want you to do this, a public see, a vision, that everyone's going to see that this is happening. And you're going to pass it over in front of the whole congregation. And that way, all of the Jewish people will know, and this is what it says this week's Torah portion. Now listen to this. This is what the Talmud says in Baba Batra, the last gate. It's a Talmud which talks about monetary law in general. But it brings this story. Give your light over. The Talmud says, It's not possible for you to give over all of your light. Because you, Moses, you had an experience speaking to God directly. It's not possible for you to give all over your light. You had a different experience. You had a very high experience. But give some of your light over to Joshua. The elders of that generation who lived with Joshua, they grew up with him. They would say, oh, Joshua, he was my classmate in school. I grew up with him. Right? The elders of that generation said that the face of Moses was as great. If the face of Moses is as great as the sun, the face of Joshua is as great as the moon. What does that mean? What do you think that means? The sun versus the moon. What's the moon? The moon is a reflection, a servant. It reflects the light that the sun gives off, right? Where does the light of the sun come from? Right? It's obviously directly from God. The moon, the fire, the infinite fire that's constantly burning in the sun is unfathomable. The moon is reflecting the light of the sun. So it was basically saying, the generation was saying, not only physically was the energy that was given off from Moses not as powerful, uh, much more powerful than the light that was given off by uh, Joshua versus Moses. Moses' light was much more powerful. Not only that, physically, but also the idea Joshua got his energy from his teacher, Moses. Moses got his energy from God directly, which one's much more powerful, right? So that's what they were saying. So they said, Moses is like the sun. Stay with me, guys, because 
I'm not just telling you a story. There's a message here that we need to take for life. But they said, Joshua's life, Joshua's face was like the moon. And then they said like this, All the elders kept saying, Woe to us from that embarrassment and shame. Oh, woe to us from this shame. What an embarrassment and what a shame. That what? That Joshua is not like Moses? Well, obviously he's not. He never sat with... What does that mean? Woe to us. Terrible for us. What an embarrassment. And what a shame. What is the shame? To who? What shame? The rabbis explain... (coughs) When they saw Moses, everyone said... We can't learn from Moses. He's unrelatable to us. He's in a place. His light is so great. Right? This is the message that you need to take with you. His light is so great. He's not relatable for me. He's much better. He's too good. Most people saw Moses. They said, there's nothing we can learn from. We'll, we'll, learn, we'll hear him speak to the public, but to get close to him, there's no point. There's no hope. <coughs> but Joshua was the unique one. Joshua says he didn't move from the tent of Moses. He never moved. He always sat next to his tent, waited for him, wanted to learn from him, wrote down exactly how he worked, how he lived, how he, how he was, how he acted. Everything. He wanted to learn every move from Moses. Was there a chance that Joshua was going to be even close to the level of Moses? No way. There's no chance. Moses spent his, his whole life talking directly to God. We all knew the level of Moses was the highest. There was no chance for the student to be like the master. Yet Joshua said to himself, I'm going to do it. I'm going to sit next to him and I'm going to learn from him. I'm going to sit by his tent. And when they waited for Moses to come back down, Joshua was standing there. He's like, he's coming, he's coming. Moses is coming and he came. Joshua wasn't involved in the golden calf and the whole sin with the golden cup, you know the story. Joshua was on his own. doesn't matter if you don't know it. The main thing is, Joshua never, never said, Moses is too great for me to be relatable to. He said, he is Moses, I am Joshua, and I'm still going to try and learn from him as much as I can. What happened? Eventually, Joshua got the light of Moses. God actually said, Joshua... Moses, you're now going to pass over some of your light, that energy that you're giving off, that godly energy. I'm going to allow that energy to be passed over to Joshua. And it says that Joshua also got a a tremendous light, not the same level as Moses, but he got a gift of a tremendous energy. You know, a person when he's born, he gives off a certain energy. You see a child, you say, wow, so cute. Over time, the way a person acts the way he reacts also gives off energy. And if a person comes a very well-controlled person, there's a tremendous energy that's given off by that. But if people feel it, you don't know the story of this person, but when someone's walking next to you and you feel that something's shady, you feel something. There is an inner intuition about the people around you. We have a gift to have an internal intuition. We shouldn't judge people. But at the same time, we have to be aware of our surroundings. We, we also, it says, when you don't know someone, be respectful to the person you don't know. 
but also suspect them. You don't know them. So you can't trust them. Hey, here's my wallet. Right? Here's my phone. Here's my, here's my everything. Just take, you can't trust someone straight away. Right? That's a mistake. In Jewish teaching, we have a rule. Kabdeu, respect. I don't know you. I'll respect you. But at the same time, maintain a distance. Chajdeu, which means suspect him. Respect and suspect. In Hebrew, it rhymes. In English, it rhymes too. Hey! Respect and suspect. So what did God say? I want Joshua, not the children of Moses. Welcome, welcome. What did God say? I want Joshua, not the children of Moses. I want Joshua to be the one that carries on. Why? Because he never gave up. He never said, ah, Moses is too high for me. Too high of a level for me to learn from. Joshua said, no, no, no. It doesn't matter what level he's on. I'm going to stick close to him. What happened? He got the position. Not only did he get the position, he physically got the energy that was beyond his level. And that's why the elders of that time said, woe to us from that embarrassment. Do you know what the elders were? They were his friends in school. They grew up with Joshua. Joshua was an older man now. They grew up with Joshua. They were friends. They used to say, yeah, we remember Joshua when he was in my class. He was that kid. Right? He was that kid. Hey, he was another friend of ours. Of course. We know him. But look where he came. When a person looks at the end of his life, he can look at some of his friends and say, yeah, we grew up together. And they can either say, look where I am. Hopefully, look where he is. We're both in a great place. Or where she is. We're both in a great place. But sometimes a person might come to a point where they look back and they say, I could have come as great as this person. How, how did he do it? What did she do? How did she become so kind and compassionate? How did they live a life which is so kind and compassionate, so meaningful? Right? So that's the embarrassment that these people went through. They were the elders... But they went through a tremendous embarrassment because they said, it's, I wish I could have come close to the level of Joshua. I could have done the same thing as Joshua did. Just we never believed in ourselves. We, we always said, oh, Moses is too far. He's too high. He's too great for us to get close to that level. And we left it. We never said to ourselves, you know what? Let's stick close to Mo Learn from him. Ask him questions. Get close to him. They never said that. But they could have done the same thing. You know, one of the, one of the great rabbis, Rav Hutner, a great rabbi of our past century said, when you hear stories of great people, don't tell me the end result of the great person. Teach me how he started, how she started. Because I want to know their way, that they were normal just like me when they started off. Eventually they became a great person. But I want to know the beginning also. It's not enough just to tell me the end result of the great person. that So great, so compassionate, so kind, so special. I want to know that I'm like that. I could be like that too. That's what they saw with Joshua. Joshua was like me. He was like you. He was like anybody else. But he made the effort. He never said, oh, it's beyond me. It's beyond me to do it. He always said, no, even though, what, what can we learn from this? What's the message to me? Well, there's so much in Judaism that we do. And we say it's impossible. 
How many things do we say it's impossible and therefore what? Give up the whole thing. Right? It's impossible. It's not going to work. Therefore, I'm, I'm canceling. Cancel? Why? Just because I can't do it 100%? Isn't 95% good too? Right? Just one second. You hear the question? Isn't 95% good too? 90% if I'm, da- I'm dating. And I say to myself, you know, I can't, uh, I, need to give, I need to give her something, you know, we're going on a date, I've been going for a while, I need to give a gift. So what do I need to give? Um, uh, a brand new phone, a brand new uh, camera, I don't know, right? Uh, something huge. And what should you give? Just a simple flower, right? Just one little small thing, simple thing. It's, the point is showing that you care. But sometimes we think, no, I have to go all out. Otherwise, all or nothing. Actually, a lot of times, all is nothing. Right? Saying that I have to give everything is, the, is sometimes the worst. Why, why are you doing so much? I didn't ask for that. It's actually embarrassing me. Propose. You have to go on top of a helicopter, jump off it, and whilst we're on the way down, throw my thing and say, here, will you marry me? Right? That's how it has to work. Why? It could be a simple proposal. The main thing is you propose. Right? The main thing is you get it done. Sometimes in life, we think to ourselves, I need to be 100%. Also with Judaism, it's like that. If I don't do Shabbat fully, I'm not doing Shabbat. I'm not religious. Why? Because I can't do Shabbat. Why? It's impossible for me. Who said you have to straight away on day one that you do Shabbat? Do it from, from the beginning till the end. 25 hours. Who said it has to be 25 hours? From the, it's true that the Torah wants, it's very serious. Don't get me wrong. According to Jewish teaching, it's very serious. But somebody, as long as you're growing, first, let's try turning off my phone for Friday night. Hey, it's not me preaching. Yes. So then you don't continue living with your mom. Okay, so there you, you did the right thing. Listen, we're not in a if if we're we're in an age where my independence uh, I don't know your age, I don't want to ask. But if I'm above a certain age where we get to a point where you know uh, I'm, I'm going to be under tied to my parents till the age of 40 and only do things because they told me to. I do it because it's the right thing to do. Now, I don't believe in it. That's another discussion. So then we have to talk. I'm just telling you in general. A lot of times you say, I don't believe in it, right? Because you think of the end result. Because either it's all or nothing. But, but let's talk about just the idea of Shabbat. Because the idea makes sense. Okay, I don't do Judaism just because it makes sense. But look at the general picture and then work towards it. Because at the end of the day, we, we can discuss who, who created this, who told us about it, where did this idea of Shabbat come from. Shabbat's just an example. But when I put in my effort and do at least a few hours, I, it, who is this for? 
Who is this for? For your mum? Then, then don't live with your mum. It's not for anybody else but for you. God says do it for you. You know, in the Judaism, it's the only religion that says this. God says, if only you leave me and do Judaism. Interesting. Leave me. If only you left me and did it for you. Because who am I doing? An infinite being. God is an infinite being, right? Does he need you to pray to him? Asking, I'm asking you. Do you think God needs you to pray to him? He, of course not. He's an infinite being. He created you. Does he, is he needed? Is he needy? It's an infinite being. According to Jewish teaching, if there is a creator that's an infinite being, does he need anything you do? So who is it all for? Who is all this for? <laughs> yeah, for me. <laughs> Who is this for? It's for our benefit. I'll tell you. There's a lot of times where I say to myself, no, I, I, I went through stages. No, I don't want it. I don't want it. So I said, fine, I don't want it. So I, did, I went on my own path. And then what did I see? Through my own thoughts and understanding, I have two options. And this option makes more sense. If I don't stick to it, and I make my own way, so then I'll make my own. Let's, Shabbat, let's say, for an example. Okay? And for some reason, I keep going back to Shabbat. Shabbat is important, that's for sure. Shabbat, for example. If, if I wouldn't have Shabbat as a thing that's fixed, set, it, wouldn't, it, wouldn't ha- it would happen once in a while between me and you. Right? But because Shabbat comes no matter what, right? it's a set day at a set time, and it's it's predetermined. Then, I c- it's not a pick and choose. If I want, I miss it. I miss it. But it's not a pick and choose. Shabbat comes Friday night. Friday night comes. I can't say, oh, today this week I'm not doing Shabbat. Friday night, so I'm going to do it on Monday. I'll do it on Tuesday. It's not the same. So, sometimes it takes my own experiences to learn that, and and it should. Uh, if if it's imposed on me, a lot of times, especially when I hit a certain age, I, I have to I have to be independent. <laughs> so you're answering the question I'll tell you something me and my children me and Shira we never impose on our children you might, you might be shocked people think that I impose Judaism on my children do you think once I ever impose Judaism I tell them things that I do but it's because it's so deeply embedded in what we do, the child follows suit. It's never a system where it's imposed. You might, you might be shocked. For instance, my parents are very religious. There were certain things that they imposed on me. But when it came to religion, I didn't feel that way. Why? Because it was something that they did so strongly that it was something that we followed suit. Shabbat was never a question. For instance... In the religious community, no one tells you, I hope you marry a Jewish girl or a guy. (laughs) Do you know that? In the religious community, no one ever tells you that. I grew up. It's kind of assumed, though. It's assumed. Why is it assumed? 
because you live a very Jewish lifestyle. If you're living a certain lifestyle, no one's telling you that you need to marry. I'm living. If I'm dating right now, we spoke about this in the past. If I'm dating, would you suggest me a non-Jewish girl? Nothing to do with being racist or not racist. Me, with my big keep on my head. And the way I look, would you suggest me a non-Jewish girl? Yes or no? I have a beautiful girl for you. She's so nice, so kind. She's much better than so many more Jewish girls, is what people tell me. So much better. But her name's Christina. Tell me. <laughs> would, you, would you suggest her for me? Why not? There we go. Mazato. Right? It's kind of, the, I'm different, right? I'm, I'm holding in a different place. Like Shabbat's kind of important. And for her, she's like, what, what is Shabbat? Sabbath? Like, you know, she won't know what it is. So for me, it's very, it's, it's more about where your values are. If your values are already there, then nothing needs to be imposed because you have those values. If, if, if my house is very Shabbat, come what may, I don't need to tell my child that today is Shabbat. My, there's my little three-year-old, right, Abraham, sometimes presses a button. We don't even tell him. As I tell my wife, leave him. He's too young. Just let him play. He's too young. Don't tell Eventually, he re-sees. You know, the kids sometimes say it. So I don't say we never tell him, oh, it's Shabbat. Don't press the light. It, it, he knows. He's, he sees that that's what we do. And then he follows suit, even from a very, very young age. So the answer to your question is that it's, it, it's interesting that the people that feel more imposed on um, a lot of times is because they're in an environment which might look religious, but it's not religious at heart. Now, uh, you know, like uh, I could tell you, even within the religious community, this can happen. It can happen even within the religious community. Someone looks religious, looks the part, but yet they are imposing on their children. The reason is because they're not putting their mind into their they're not putting their minds into their Judaism. It's not, it's not part of their heart. If it's part of you, your identity, it automatically is translated into the child. Sometimes the child might say no, but we don't impose. Use a more modern yes. You call it a performative Judaism. Beautiful. I love it. We're into titles. Yeah. Yeah. You have to first... Change with these. Okay. So, yes. Yeah. No, 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 not at all. Maybe we should pass the mic if there are questions so that people on the podcast can hear. Otherwise, I feel bad. It's going to come. Hey, please. But stand over here because you might be too close to the speaker. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes. Hello, Rabbi. Hey. So, um, sorry, what was your name? Aaron. Aaron. So to Aaron's point, you, you, were, you were saying that um, it's just something that you you passed down as a value system yes with the the example of marrying a jewish girl for example yes so if you grow up in a religious household and your parents are not imposing this value system on you but you just understand it because it's ingrained in you you grow up around it and then you decide to dissent and you decide of your own volition uh actually no i don't want to marry a jewish girl which i'm not speaking for me because i would not do that um but in that case, is it the failure of the parents for not having imposed or is it the failure of the parents for not having uh, ingrained the value system effectively enough? Or is it if you call it a failure, right? If, is it is is it 
the failure of the child who decided to be who decided to dissent mm. or what do you attribute that dissent to so that's a very good question um thank you, thank you. so look there are times where a child says uh listen dad mom you lived the way you lived and i want to live the way i live i'm not into it this can happen now at that time really the question should be how should the parents reflect they're going to go through a thought process what's happening here right so how at that time they need to ask themselves okay what what happened we need to reflect why did my child do this it can be it can definitely be that the child came to the position where he said i'm done and it's nothing to do with the parents it could very well be how do i know that you see it from the beginning with abraham are you telling me that abraham didn't ch- uh, uh, train his child well enough he was the father of chesed the talmud actually says that with abraham because his chesed was so strong that took away a certain element of restriction on his own children when you have when you expose yourself so much to the public and give yourself over to the public so much you have less time to be able to um uh, be strict with you you know have a certain influence your child so there is a certain element of that the, you know we see from the beginning that there's there's children that say i don't want it it's possible for sure but as a parent the correct way is to reflect and say wait a second, what, what is it that the values that we did that we were lacking that caused this to happen? I don't believe that parents should eat themselves up, but they should ask themselves, what is it that's within the system that we did that caused this to happen? Even though there are times where it's not the child's, not the child's fault. You know, it's not the parent's fault, it's not the child's fault. It could be that the child went through certain uh, challenges in school. It, it might not be the parent's fault, but they definitely should reflect and say, but the end result is, the question should also be, should the parents impose at all on a child that's rebelling? Right? So they see a child that's moving out, drifting off. So you know, To be quiet for sure is wrong. Right? Just like I'm, if, if this is a value to me, but the question is, why am I telling my child off? If I see my child now rebelling, and I feel the need to tell my child off, the question is, why am I telling my child off? How am I? Ch- my child puts the hand in the fire. Right? He knows, based on the parent's reaction, that he's doing something dangerous. The parent is, oh, don't do it. That's going to hurt. Right? The, the reaction of the parent is so strong that the child immediately knows that the fire is no go. Right? We also have, we had, when a baby hits, you know, he's crawling, and then they start touching things. They touch the oven. They put their hands... And there's, there's a limit to how much we can control. The minute he touches, gets, we react so strongly. It's not coming from a place of imposing. It's because my values are so strong that I feel the need to say something because it hurts the value system that I stand with. But it's not done in a way of imposing. And eventually, when the child, you see that the child's on his own age, and an age where then you, you know, you got to let him go. You can't do anything. We're not in prison. Everyone has Bechira. Everyone has a choice. And we see that from the times of Abraham, Yishmael, from Esav, Isaac. Right? Abraham said, keep him home. He was trying to kill his own brother. Abraham 
Abraham says, no, we can't throw my child out. I'm a man of chesed, a man of kindness. His wife, Sarah, says, no, get rid of this child. He's dangerous to Isaac. Abraham had two children, Yishmael and Yitzchak. They had an argument, Abraham and Sarah. One said, throw Yishmael out. You've got to let him go. He can't stay here. He's dangerous. He's, he's constantly trying to shoot Isaac with his, uh, with his bow and arrow. We can't keep him home. And um, uh, Sarah, said, uh, Sarah said, let's get him out. Abram said, no, what do you mean let's get him out? I'm a man of chesed. I'm a man of kindness. What, did, what happened at the end? God said to Abram, whatever your wife says, listen to her voice. And that's when the Jews say from then on, Right, whatever your wife says, you listen to her voice. Don't don't argue. Right, whatever your wife says, something on those lines, listen to her voice. And, and that's what they did. It was very hard for Abraham, but that's what they did. They had to send them away. So there are cases where, if it's, but it comes from a place where this is so strong in my value system, I, this hurts me. Right, so that's another thing. Okay, yes, yeah. No, no, please. So let's say I know somebody uh, who has a younger brother and he's possibly thinking of maybe marrying somebody non-Jewish. I mean, obviously, they're Jewish. Right. Um, what is, if the older brother is so passionate about their views that they don't want to, they don't even want to attend the wedding, uh, would you say that's a form of imposing? Is that, up, it's up to them what they want to do? Well, right. So you have to look at it from the lens of the other person as well. Okay, so from the lens of the, the, the brother that's the younger brother that's so which one's the younger right so the older brother from the lens of the older brother he's seeing it as 3000 years of history it's not it's not coming from a sense of imposing he's seeing it as it's like looking at an endangered species right and Jews are endangered species we're worried about some whales that are in the ocean that might get Jews are an endangered species we've been through thousands and thousands of years and we're still here continuing a chain, just like that. My grandparents who survived Morocco, you know, different things, they had to escape Morocco, pretending that they're, they're, they're pretending that they're going to a wedding. They had to pretend they're going to a wedding, they escaped. They did all that, and then the generations before, and the generation, this is not about guilt, by the way. I'm not saying this to give guilt. I'm just saying a reality. When I'm passionate about my Judaism and where I came from and my values, then and I see that someone in my own family is giving up all of that. It's, it's not his fault. It's not his fault. You have to understand. I had someone come to me, knock on my doors, crying, telling me we're a Kohen, we're a family of Kohanim, and I have one son, and that's it. He's marrying a non-Jew. He's he's already getting married to a non-Jew. Please save my son. Please get him. Please save him. I felt so bad. He was crying in front of me. 
This happened to me. He knocked on my door, comes in. Rabbi, I heard about you. Please, I need to speak to you. He made sure no one was looking. He was embarrassed. He sat with me and he told me, I have a son, my only son, and he's marrying a non-Jew. Please save me. I don't know what to do. Can you speak to him? Here's, my, here's his number. I'm like, what do you think I said to him? <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't say no because when you see a father, a parent, there's, you have to have some compassion. He's, he's hurt. Something's bothering him. So I have to, whether you agree with him or not, something's hurting. So you have to have compassion. But I, I, I told him, what, what, what should I do? Should I go and chain him? You, you, do you think I'm gonna get? I'm a police. Yeah, I'm gonna take marry a Jew. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. You have to understand. That's why I'm saying, Mazaltov. Right. That's what I'm saying. Right? That's what I'm saying. You have to feel strong with your identity very strong with your identity in order to not do that right for for if my judaism is not really there then why wouldn't i marry a non-jew honestly between me and you why wouldn't i marry someone who's not jewish i'm not much different than her she's great I, i don't keep much judaism now there's not much difference between us so why should i care so the only way to care is if, the, if it's a strong value system within me. If I'm strong with it within me, then I would care. So, I hope nothing happens. So, uh, so the, the, the idea here is that, you know, this is what I told him. That I can speak to him, I can say hello to him, I can talk to him, come friendly with him. But I wouldn't speak to him directly about that. I can only try and strengthen his values to a point where he says, wow, Judaism is so important to me. I need her to want that too. That could happen, but that could take time. It's, it's kind of late right now, right? I'm not going to tie someone up and say don't. I'm not going to manipulate them. But you have to also understand this father. Look at it from his his eyes. Here's a father who's a Kohen, who comes from a lineage of priests. And it's many, many generations. His father, he grew up with a very strong identity, different identity to what we grew up here very strong identity his father his grandfather his great grandfather he knew his grandfather they were tremendous rabbis you have to see the picture from from his eyes and now he's having this one child and he's giving up his judaism why are we okay if we speak about an endangered fish we all get very upset about we get upset about it we yeah it's really a problem but my own people no it's fine just give it up 3000 years of history my grandfather everyone worked so hard that's not the reason why i need to connect to judaism don't get me wrong the reason i connect to judaism isn't because of the 3000 years of history it's because judaism is very important the message that we have the message that we carry to the world is very important but at the end of the day you have to see it from the lens of that person too it's not because he's imposing it's because it's so strong to me. Now, there's another aspect that I didn't want to get into. So I gave a whole talk at once about marrying Jewish. But there's another aspect. When does a person get married? At the worst age to get married. What do I mean? You don't yet see the future. You don't have kids yet. You don't know how you're going to be in the end of your life. You don't know how you're going to start thinking towards the end of your life. You get married when you're young, hopefully. Right? You get married when you're young. That age, what exists? Yeah, what exists My uh, depends how young you are. But by me, the age I did, I was 23. What existed by a 23-year-old? 
by me it was Halo. Today it's Fortnite. Uh, what, what else exists? Fortnite. Making sure that I have some uh, um, spare cash. Tuition. Right. Paying my bills. Right. That's the, even paying your bills. Right. I don't think too much about. Right? That's anything. Yeah. Somehow it's gonna work. I don't think about it too much. I work in a Starbucks. I don't run around. I'm not working yet in college. You're not working yet until you leave college. You start living life. So, um, where was I? I don't know. I'm just talking. But marriage. Worst time to get married is when we get married. Why? Because think about it. Look at the synagogues. Which age do you get? Do you see 23-year-olds running, flocking into shuls? No. 24-year-olds? No. When do people start coming to shul? Either they have a family and they want a bar mitzvah, or they have, they're old and they're thinking about their, uh, uh, you know, the life under the ground and how that's going to work. So, you know, you've got you to gotta get involved Jewishly, right? So that's, a, that's basically what happens. Either you're old or think the kids... Parents with kids, till their bar mitzvah. Once the kid is bar mitzvah, there's a period where the parent gives up and goes off. And then eventually when they get really old, they come back and they start getting involved with the synagogue again. Okay, so those are the ages. What am I trying to say? The way that we are now, there's many things that are ir irrelevant to us. But as time progresses, I have a child. Where I say to myself, wait a second, what do I want my child to see? What, do I want my, what kind of life do I want my child to have? I start thinking about my youth. Hebrew school? No Hebrew school. You know, I lived five years in a community which had barely any Jewish community. There's a lot of Jews. Barely any Jewish community. And I grew up with a very Jewish community. It's a world apart. A world apart. Sometimes because we're so gifted to have a Jewish community, we think, eh, we don't need it. It's a world apart. Do you know how many Israelis come to America to realize how important Judaism is? Why? Because in Israel, everything's Jewish. Yom Kippur, everyone's doing Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah, everyone's doing Rosh Hashanah. Sukkot, everyone's doing hey, Die. In Hebrew, they say die. Not literally. Die in English. Not in English. Hebrew. Die. Enough. Die. Right? Enough. And they go to America. Bon, it's el America. America. Right? And then they come here. And then what happens? Yeah, they realize, wait a second, no Hanukkah. I've seen families like this. No Hanukkah, no Jewish tradition. My kids, they don't have, what do they have? They have uh, Netflix. They have uh, South Park. Uh, they have this. I don't know, what age is South Park allowed? It's, it's, right, but never. <laughs> Which monster? You mean the, the magazines, the people magazine? Oh, I'm just joking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, right, the matzah in the kosher section. Right, right, exactly, perfect example. People magazines, you know, all the, all the magazines as you're about to buy something and you're seeing all these uh, uh, people without clothes on versus going to buy something and seeing matzah. What's more beautiful, right? So, uh, but, you know, you get the, you get the point. We've... There's a certain point where you say to yourself, okay, we've objectified things so much. There's no, there's no internal identity. There's no strong identity. There's a, there's a lot of good that we have in our community. You know, within the Jewish community, 7% get divorced, the religious community, versus over 50%. It's a tremendous number. 
the, the way that we grow up our children. There's certain things that we do which are beautiful. And you might say to yourself, as you, you have a child, and you see that child in front of you, wait a second, I'm not here forever. You, then you go through midlife crisis, I'm really not here forever. And then you hit 50, 60, you say, wait a second, life is so short. So suddenly this friend, that friend, this person, look what happened in Miami. In one second, everything, life is so short. Wait, you start thinking about things. You say, what, what, is it life only about work and money? Or there's something beyond? Maybe there's a higher power like we spoke about. You start asking yourself questions. And those questions can come later on when you're, after you're married. And then what happens? She remembers her values that she grew up with and you remember the values that you grew up with and you start moving in a different a distance further and further apart from each other you know it's a very hard um it's not easy both for the children and for the parents a multi-faith relationship i'm not saying that it's impossible to happen but it, it, it makes things more difficult a multi-faith relationship both for the identity of the child i deal with many many families that come many people that still get involved and they are not married to Jews. The synagogue that I had in Oregon, not one person was married to a Jew in that synagogue. Not one. Every single person who came was Jewish, but their, their spouse, whether it was the wife or the husband, was not Jewish. No, not one person that came to my shul. It was amazing. No, it's just in the middle of nowhere in Oregon. So we had a shul. So, but not one person. And the AC, you know, their, their child doesn't, doesn't really have an identity because it, it's hard. It's not, it's not about whether it's good or not good. It's just that's where the child's holding, you know. Anyway, so those are, yes. Can I ask a question? Yes, um, please. When you're in Oregon and all of these people were non-Jews, why did they even come to synagogue? They were Jewish. I know. Their spouse was non-Jewish because of this reason. Because when a person gets older, you start thinking, I worked, I made money, now what? I need meaning. I live my life. Every day I make money, I come home, I work. What else is there in life besides for that? I, I go through, I used to be beautiful. Then suddenly I saw one wrinkle, saw another. I started seeing my hair leaving my face. I say to myself, wait a second, life is so short. People start thinking. You think beyond the now. As a child, you're more inst into instant gratification. You give a child healthy food versus unhealthy food, sweet versus less sweet. What's he going to go for? Sweet. We as human beings naturally would go for instant gratification. What feels good, but that's not always what is good. So over time, a lot of these members of the community felt that they still want to connect. And they have children. Some of them uh, would identify as Jews, some of them not. Whether Irrelevant whether... We identify them as Jews. Forget Orthodox now, not Orthodox. That child doesn't identify. It just doesn't identify. It bothers them. They don't have the way that they grew up. There's a feeling of like, I gave up my, my 3,000, 4,000 years of history. All those little things that we did, I took advantage of. It bothers them. And eventually they say, wait, say, I wanna, at least me, I want to get more involved. And that's really the way that you're meant to educate your child is by you being involved and then your f child follows but that's really what happens it's not just where i was it's happening everywhere it, it, yeah it's, uh, it is it's, it's um doing something now which is an investment not only for now but also for the future when you when you when you date 
right? There's different types of people that date. Some people date for now. How is she? How does she feel? How, do, how is he? How does he feel? What do, they, right, what do they feel like now? There's people that date for now. And then I say to them, oh, so you're thinking of, you know, eventually marrying her? No, <laughs> Rabbi. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, so what's going on? So what are you doing all this for? You know, it's, uh, I'm still, I'm not in that stage, Rabbi. I'm still in that, you know, a recipe. A recipe to marrying young, right, is to do it in the religious way. Because eventually, you know, how many times can you sit with a person and not get intimate with them? Eventually, you're going to make the decision, either yes or no. But sometimes you can be intimate with a girl four, five years, six years. It feels good for me now. We're living in a very comfortable life. Once in a while, we meet each other and we do our thing. And then we continue. And then you end up six, seven years going out with the same thing. And then you move on to that. And then you say, okay, we're really not compatible for each other. I once had someone come to my house. He told me, Rabbi, we dated for four years. Thank God I dated in the way I dated and not the way that you, the religious community dates. Because if I would have dated the way you date, I would have probably married her. And after four years, I would have got divorced. At least the way I did it, it took me four years to know that she's not for me. What do you think I told him? It took you four years to figure it out. It, it took you four years to figure it out. Were you proud of him? Was he told you? Do you understand? It took you four years to figure it out. What's a tikkun? You're right. You do. Well, there's, it's true. You have to work on yourself, but there's also divorce in Judaism. And that also exists. You know, Judaism is aware that there's times where it doesn't work. And it's better to, for the health of you and for the health of life it's a mitzvah to divorce. It's a sad thing, but it's a mitzvah. So there is gerushin gam. You can't just say that every marriage is a tikkun, and uh, that's what I have to do. And that's, there's a point sometimes where you have to divorce. But we have to do what we can to avoid that. But anyway, he told me, it took me four years to realize she's not for me. I said, I'm telling you, if you would have dated the right way, it could have taken you two weeks to realize she's not for you. But what happens? You, get, you start living together. Ah, it feels good. Yeah, but she's, you, you can't communicate. Who cares? We're not even talking right now. We're busy doing other things. Yeah. <laughs> right? We don't even talk. Right? It feels good for me now. It feels good for me now. You spend a year, two years, three years. It feels good, feels good. Eventually, the feels good moves a bit down the hill. And then you'd look at yourself and say, what am I left with? You could have figured that out right from the beginning if you did it in the right way. Anyway, so, um, you know, it's... I don't know where I'm, I'm holding. But anyway, my mind is all over the place. Any other questions? Yes. It was when he, you know, according to Jewish teaching, the first two commandments were given to the Jewish people directly from God. Okay. Now... People have questions whether they believe in it or not. It's another whole discussion to verify whether this happened. Okay, there's another discussion. But uh, according to Jewish teaching, the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments was given directly from God. I am God, don't have any other gods. At that point, the Jewish people weren't on the level. You have to be on a very high level 
to be able to hear a message directly from God. If your body isn't, they were on a high level, but if your body's not on the spiritual levels that is able to hear such an, a, a, an awesome connection to the source of everything, it's an outer body experience. It says in the Torah, A person can't see me, see God and live. It's such a spiritual experience that your body, you, you don't want to be in the body. It, it, you leave the body. So um, that's what happened according to Jewish teaching. And eventually Moses was the one that continued to hear the rest and he passed it on to the Jewish people. When Moses went and, and was given over the Torah, the entire Torah from God, he spent 40 days being and receiving the Torah. 40 is a very big number. 40 is the de- a number of purity, of transformation. The, you know, the 40 days, uh, it says in the Talmud that the first 40 days of conception, after conception, you could pray for the child to be a boy or a girl. You know this? Sadiq. What? Wouldn't that be like, kind of like messed up though? You're like, first 40. Well, it's better than what we, what the society for the rest of, for throughout history, society will do much worse. They will do sex selection. Infanticide was a normal thing till a few hundred years ago. If the child was born, if it's a boy, you keep it. If it's a girl, we throw it or one or the other. Whatever God gives you, you have to you'd be happy for. But the Talmud says, that you can pray for a child to be either a boy or a girl the first 40 days. After 40 days, the Talmud says, It's a waste of prayer. Once you've passed 40 days, why is it a waste of prayer? Because either it's a boy or a girl. You can't change it. It's very strange. Why is it strange? Just an interesting point. Right? We learn in science that there's the X and Y chromosome. Zygote, straight away, as soon as there's a moment of conception, it should be either a boy or girl. Can't, the Talmud says, you, if you make three prayers, three different times you pray for something, it's a waste of prayer. One of them is you walk into your city, you walk into your town, you're coming from out of town, you're coming into your town, and you see a fire. You see a massive fire, and you say, oh my, right, oh my God, literally, that's your prayer. Right, oh my God, please don't let that be my house. The Talmud says that's a waste of prayer. Why? Either it's your house or it's not. There's a fire happening. It's already, well, it's, already it's already on fire. Something's on fire. You can't pray on something that it should, shouldn't happen if it's already happening. You get it? The Talmud says the same with a child. 40 days after conception, up to 40 days you can pray that the child should be either male or female. Once it's 40 days... You can't pray anymore. It's strange. Why is it strange? First of all, how did the Talmud know 40 days? What's even more strange is scientifically we learn X and Y chromosome. Have you heard of X and Y chromosome? You didn't learn science in school? What's going on here? Right? So you, X and Y chromosome. And straight away it determines whether it's a boy or a girl. It's right at the moment of conception. So what does the Talmud mean? There's actually something called the SRY genum. You should research it. That even if it's determined whether it's a boy or a girl. There's actually attached to the Y chromosome. There's a determining uh, a chromosome called the S uh, gene. It's a determining gene called the S or Y gene. And it can change. It can flip. 
And it, the, according to science, 40th day. Up to 40 days, the SLY genome is still effective. Once 40 days happened, it won't change. Very interesting. Already from the times of the Talmud, we always said that you have up to 40 days to pray for a boy or a girl. How could we have known? You know, you know what a baby looks like at 40 days? I just took my kids to the children's uh, museum. At one point, I had to tell them, no, quick, let's go somewhere else. But uh, there was a whole section about having babies and fertility. And uh, it shows them what a, what a fetus looks like on the first uh, beginning, 40 days, few months, tiny, nothing. How could you know? But we always knew that on the 40th day, on the 40th day, it determines whether it's a boy or a girl already till the 40th day. It's a beautiful thing. Why did I get into the SOI genome? I don't know. Um, but we were talking about something else. It was important. Praying, praying. So you can pray. Um, and then dating. And dating. What was that? The dating? Oh, so the face. Oh, so 40 days. 40 days, the face. Right. 40 days is uh, a, a, a time of transformation. The flood was 40 days. The, the mikvah has to be a, a, 40, a number of 40. 40 is when M, in Hebrew, a mother, is Aleph Mem, M. What's M? What's the gematria of Aleph and Mem? 41. Aleph is 1. Mem is 40. A mother becomes a mother at the 41st day. At the end of the 40th day of pregnancy, She's already considered, according to Jewish teaching, a mother. Right, that's another discussion. You want to bash me about abortion, but that's another thing. But the 41st day is when, according to Jewish teaching, the mother's considered as a, as a mother. That's why she's Aleph Mem. A father's different. A father's only comes the father when he's Aleph Bet. Av Bayit. When he's Aleph Bet, one comes two. When the child's actually born. Right? When the child's born, the father really has a a say, an involvement. But until that point, the Talmud says, Ubar yerech imo. There's a discussion of whether the, the, the fetus is part of the mother's body or not. But it's considered the, the part of the mother. Until it's born, the, the, the jurisdiction over the child is the mother, of course. right? But once it's born, they share the jurisdiction with the father. So the al av comes a av bet, alef bet, when there's birth. A mother comes a mother on the 41st uh, day of conception after she's uh, pregnant. But anyway, so that was the whole idea. It was 40 days, your transformation. And then from then on, they couldn't see him because of his experience. He had an outer body experience and they couldn't see him anymore. Okay, there was a lot of random talks tonight. But yeah. Any other questions, thoughts, ideas, dating questions? Yeah, all the time. Okay, I guess we're done. All right, thank you, thank you. It's a pleasure.